My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Skill and intelligence certainly gets you so far, but hard work in channeled in the right direction, in the right area for the right intentions, I think trumps everything, to be honest. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shump and in this episode, we'll continue the conversation with founder of Forefront Accountants, Drew Schofield. Find out about his property strategy when it comes to buying wisely, how he structures businesses and properties for clients, the importance of not putting all your eggs into one basket and much, much more. Schofield starts off by telling us about some of the properties that he has in his portfolio at the moment. We've bought and sold, but at the moment, we've only I've only really got two properties that I'm holding at the moment. One, our um, our um, principal place of residence, so our family home, which is in Cannon Hill, which I think we bought really well. We're right near a really good school. Um, we're we're right on the Cannon Hill Morningside cusp, so I think we've bought quite well there, and we're kind of we're close to all the. I'm a big believer in you don't always necessarily buy exactly in the suburb you want to be in. Maybe buy one suburb, one suburb back, and make some changes to that property because there'll always be people that can't afford to get into that other suburb, so they'll go to the next suburb along, and that's sometimes where you see the growth. So that's kind of the the gamble I've taken there. Not that's really a gamble because it's our home, but um, and then the other property is the property my business partner and, and I own together that we run our accounting practice from. Um, the, the main reason we bought that is it's in um, the suburb in Brisbane called Wool and Gabba, near the Gabba. Um, it's got, um, at the time when we bought it, they were talking about the Cross River Rail happening and then that's now been sanctioned or that's going to be legislated. So I guess I've tried to find that upside. And also, I think it also has approval for... Actually, I'm not going to say also, I know it does. It's got approval. It's zoned for 13 stories where we are as well. So there's upside here. So whilst it's an accounting firm at the moment, I haven't bought it for that, for it to be that forever, if that makes sense. There's, you've got to have options. So I always tell clients you've got to have options. And we've got options as well. So if we outgrow this place, it'll rent very easily. And at some point, we may develop it or we may, you know, well into the future or we may sell it to somebody who can realise the upside themselves and will take a, 
a, um, a capital gain from that, whatever that might be. He goes on to elaborate a little bit about his strategy when buying property in order to gain the most out of his purchases. Our first property was we wanted a home where, where we, 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 yeah, our first property we bought, we we bought outside of the, the 12K radius because we thought you're better off to be just outside than just in because of the price differential and that worked really well in our favour. We've then, I mean, we'd probably prefer to be in living in a suburb like Hawthorne or Balimba or Balmoral and that sort of area there. I mean, we're so close to it, it's not funny, but the price differential is so huge. So my strategy there is, again, buying one or two suburbs away from where you really want to be, um, not because of affordability, but because I think you've got better chances of getting capital growth. And I think it's that's probably working already because there's properties are in our area that are where the land is selling for, you know, not not too far away from what we bought our property for. So you've got to look at that and say, okay, and we've got a, you know, our home's quite nice and it's fairly brand new. So you've got to look at that and say, okay, well, we've got value there straight away. And then I guess with our commercial property that um, my business partner, Carmen, and I own, um, it's that ups. It's just looking for that upside. Yes, we're going to run an accounting firm from it. Yes, it's a really nice, well-presented professional office that we fitted out well, and it's got really nice street appeal, and it's well signed, and it looks really good and you know professional. But there's that upside there as well. So I think you've got to chase upside whenever you don't just buy something. No, you don't fall in love with things. It's an investment, and you've got to buy it. There's got to be upside there. Schofield then talks a little bit about how the rental income works in regards to his commercial property and how this helps him act as a good example for his clients too. Our accounting business is our lessee and we're the lessor, which is great. So, yeah, so we've got another entity that we've established that owns the property and then we pay ourselves um, market rental to that um, from this business. So, it, it, you know, it, it makes sense. We're going we're gonna to have to be somewhere. So we may as well invest in ourselves rather than somebody else is my view. Yeah, and, and that's very smart and that's what I love about it when um, you can structure it like that. I guess this would be a completely different topic for another day. I'm pretty sure we'll go into you know quite a lot of, a lot of stuff like that if we talked about that side of things. It makes sense and it's, you know, it also you're then sort of living testament to your clients when you're encouraging, which I do, particularly my business clients, hey, you know, you've got to invest outside your business. You can't just invest in just in your business. I mean, it's the next logical thing. It's, it seems, you know, you buy a well, it's a no-brainer. Pay rent to yourself, not to somebody else. When it comes to structuring businesses or properties for clients, Schofield has a particular strategy which can make a huge difference. We've structured in lots of different ways depending on, you know, the client's, um, I guess, appetite for risk, what they want to buy, where they want to buy it. But we always make sure that clients buy their properties separate to their trading entity because there's a there's a risk what I call a risk mismatch so the risk in operating a business first versus the risk of receiving passive uh, rental income is totally different so you want to make sure that you've got you don't want to put both eggs in the one basket you want to put an egg in either basket I guess from that sense I always tell clients you should only ever do anything from a structuring point of view or a strategy point of view to mitigate risk that's why you do things everything else after that is windfall gain. So you don't structure things just for tax, you structure things for risk, always for risk, to mitigate risk to the lowest. 
possible level that you're comfortable with. And I guess the analogy I give there is you're better off having one egg in 12 baskets and 12 eggs in one basket. Because if you drop one or two baskets along the way, you've still got 10. You drop one basket with 12 eggs, you don't know how many times they're going to rattle together and you might lose the whole lot. So I guess when you're structuring that sort of prop, any sort of property, you really need to look at what what does your current structure um, have and should we put it somewhere else? And there there is sometimes with clients I've seen over the over the years, there's a there's a I guess an inhibition there because of the cost of setting up different structures. You know, it is costly. It does, does cost money to set up companies and trusts and unit trusts and self managed super funds. If you go down that road as well, uh, there is a real cost to that, and there's, a, there's an ongoing administ- administrative cost as well, the accounts and people like that. But um, I always say, don't risk it for a biscuit. There's no point, um, you know, saving a couple of thousand dollars now. Then looking back and thinking, geez, I wish we just segregated things here. It would have been a hell of a lot easier because you just don't know. You don't know what's around the corner, and you hope that you never need that. You, the, the risk mitigation you do, you hope you never really need it. But when you do, and I've seen clients need it, I mean, that, that's when it. They look at that and just think, boy, geez, we're glad we did that. He provides us with an example of how not putting all your eggs into the one basket or mitigating risk can mean the difference between losing or keeping assets. You're running a business, you're dealing with the public, you're dealing with suppliers, you're dealing with lots and lots of different people that you don't um, you don't always necessarily know well. Um, and then things, things, things can just happen in business that are out of your control that you've got to deal with that can present issues. Um, so you don't want to get to a point where um, a particular company you might be operating has to be liquidated or something like that happens and you've got a, a really good you know, commercial property asset with upside that has to go down with the ship. So that's where you want to make sure you've got a, that segregation between a, an operating trading company and an investment trust or and it can be an investment company as well. We've had clients that have put commercial properties in um, companies um, for various reasons. But in the main, we, we tend to focus on trusts because of the, the ability to, to distribute income and also to get access to um, capital gains tax concessions and um, I guess those kind of arrangements as well. And I think a lot of people have probably raised this question up and I'm pretty sure this is probably a common question is um, putting, say, for example, a commercial property in a trust um, and also distributing income because that's one of the benefits as well. Say you're running a company and you want to actually distribute the income but not pay, for example, you want to hire an unemployed to pay maybe a family member and stuff. Is that something you would distribute through a trust through the company? Like how does that kind of structure? Potentially, yeah. I mean, you've got a there's a you've got a, there's a few steps you've got to follow, but in the main, you're paying you're paying rent um, for the um, the exclusive use of that property to your trust. The trust, if it has a, a profit at the end of the year, it has to distribute that income to its beneficiaries. And then it's at that point in time, prior to 30th of June, that you make that decision on where you're going to distribute that income to. And then if there's a taxation benefit from that, then that's all the better. So basically, um, before the 30th, say, for example, of, of June, before the tax you know, has to be completed, can you distribute those funds to, to family members before then or does it have to be done? You don't always have to distribute the income straight away. So whilst you distribute um, the income through the financial statements and then report whatever income you receive it as, as a beneficiary from a trust and your income tax return, you may not actually receive physically cash receive those funds. So they get segregated into the accounts and they're called a, uh, an unpaid president entitlement 
or um, a beneficiary entitlement and they form part of what's called the beneficiary entitlement account. So that if you like the equity of the trust. So that's that's an often often a thing. Um, the way a trust is uh, money can come and go as the trustee at the trustee's discretion and to whoever they like. Um, it's just at, at some point in time, uh, prior to 30 June, they have to make a decision on where the net income of the trust is going to be distributed from the year for the year and who's going to pay income tax on that money. Schofield highlights the importance he places on making sure that tax is paid properly in regards to his clients. It's something that we do um, well and truly before 30th of June. So one thing we're very strong on um, at Forefront Accountants, um, I guess, and um, I've always been strong on it, my business partner's particularly strong on it, and I'll give him credit for this because he is a, um, I mean, we're both very good at what we do, but he is a, I mean, he's been in the industry longer than me, um, So, but he's always fought really hard and I guess made sure that our, our clients and our, the people that work for us understand tax planning and how crucial it is. We're really the opinion that you get more bang for buck for every dollar you spend on tax planning than you do on compliance. So any clients that have any sort of situation whatsoever, we, we do our, our level best to meet with them in May and June before the end of the year so that we can, we can make some some big decisions on where money's going to ultimately land and who's going to pay income tax on it, whether that's a company or a trust or whatever the particular arrangement is. And that's just so crucial to have that meeting because once, 30, once the 30th of June rolls around, it makes it really hard to, um, well, it's impossible to go back in time. <laughs> so it makes it really hard to make decisions. So we really like to make sure we've made all those crucial decisions for those clients that want to take up and understand the value of tax planning prior to 30th of June and lock them in, make the notes and make sure that's what's administered. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into the reasons why Drew Schofield went into property rather than other forms of investment. There's something about property, you can hold it, you can touch it, you can see it, you can drive past it. The most important thing for Drew Schofield when his clients leave his office? The most important thing for me when anyone leaves my office, and I always say it to them, and even when we have a meeting, I say, look, if there's anything you don't understand, call me, text me, email me. His viewpoint on risk when it comes to property investing? Provide you do it sensibly and carefully. You know, take a risk. Don't just do what you think you can do. Do a little bit more. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum, and you're listening to Property Investory. Schofield tells us a bit more about situations where you have to physically transfer money from a trust and how this has changed over time. One of the times that you do actually have to physically transfer the money or cash flow the money from a trust is if you distribute to a company. So once upon a time when you distributed to a company, it wasn't a problem. You could you could accrue that beneficiary entitlement account or that unpaid president entitlement that I was talking about before where you didn't actually, you could record the money as being received by the company. The company would pay tax, but you wouldn't actually have to physically cash transfer the money to the company, similar to what we do with individuals. But there was a, a tax ruling some years ago that where the ATO looked at that situation and said, well, this is an unfair advantage to to um, individual beneficiaries because they're distributing all the income from the trust or company, then they're using the money personally anyway. So they put put a stop to that. Um, that's not the end of the world. We often have clients that distribute to companies um, and it's part of a broader, broader tax and operational strategy. 
Um, we might have a client that's made a particularly good profit in a trust and they want to distribute that income to a company. Uh, the benefit of that is you're locking in a, a fixed percent. Um, provided that money's transferred from the trust to the company, there's no problem there at all. And then that money's then used to reinvest and, and do other things. So that's it. That's one of the things that may come out of a tax planning meeting. As an example, say someone has made $1 million in their trust and from the trust, X amount of dollars are distributed and a flat rate of 30% on tax is paid inside the company. And from there, the money is reinvested into whatever they need to do for the company. So, in regards to this scenario, Schofield tells us how to get money out of the company to spend it on things like houses or holidays is not an easy thing to do. Look, the strategy you're talking about is great there. So, you may have a trust, you might have a, a, a property or another investment or you know, it could just be um, business profit for that matter and you distribute it to a trust. So, in the case where you've got a million dollar profit, taxable profit, you're paying tax at 30 cents in the dollar, so you're going to have $700,000 left over. Now, you use that $700,000 to then reinvest in whatever it is you choose. You may, and you know, buying properties in a company isn't a bad strategy sometimes because you've got a fixed, you've got a, and I always talk to clients, you know, you've got to look at your after tax cost. Don't look at your tax before tax cost. No one talks about before tax profit and property and they shouldn't. What's left at the end for me? What do I have to reinvest? Because you can't reinvest the tax money because you've got to pay that to the tax man. That's the same as paying the builder or the plumber, you know, it's no different. Um, so that strategy can work where you're left with that money. How do you get the money out? Um, there's there's only two ways to get money out of a company. That's to receive um, remuneration for services derived, so you know, in the form of salary or wages or a director's fee, um, or to receive a dividend. So in that situation where we have individuals that want to get access to that money that's now in the company, again, it comes down to good tax planning. We'd have to have good strategies in place to either make sure those people receive a frank dividend um, up front, which probably wouldn't be the best idea in that situation because they would be paying more tax anyway, or you have it and structured in a way where it forms a um, – it's getting a little bit technical here, sorry, Tyrone, people's eyes will be watering over soon, but it's okay. Um, you, you end up structuring uh, what's called a Division 7A loan and then that money's repayable over a seven-year period. So there, that's how they get access to money. And some developers, I'm sure, just take it out and just wear the tax, which is never a good idea. <laughs> I mean, I guess everything's got to be done in consultation with a good accountant that understands property, understands tax, and how the two, the two issues intersect. What's best for me as a taxpayer, I guess. He then goes on to tell us whether there is a difference between a director's fee and a remuneration through a salary or as an employee. It's called a director's fee because they're a director more than anything. So, I mean, it's, it's no different. I mean, the income still earned by the individual, um, they still have to pay income tax on it and superannuation is still payable on that amount as well. It's just something that you can use as, a, I guess, as an accounting or a tax function um, whilst you're preparing a client's records rather than you know, doing it um, all through the year. I mean, there we've got clients that are directors that are paid a director's fee, much like a salary and wage. So there's real no, there's no real difference. It's just a more just a title. There's no income tax benefit or anything to it. It's still just ordinary income. In regards to director's fee, Schofield elaborates a little bit more about instances where you would and would not pay it. It's got to be paid a remuneration commensurate with the services they provide. Um, it's, I mean, it's a pretty easy argument in most instances to make. 
where a client has a company and they're doing a development project, I mean, they're going to be putting the time in. So, you, I mean, you can't pay an outlandish amount of money. You know, you can't pay a director's fee, and nor would you anyway, of you know, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars in a year. If you if if you can't substantiate that that person's worth, if you can substantiate that person's worth it, then yeah, by all means, pay it. But if you can't, you wouldn't, and you probably wouldn't anyway, because that wouldn't be of of great tax value to your client to pay them a director's fee like that. You'd be more going down the dividend frank dividend road if you could where there's a bit of tax paid on the income that that person's receiving as a dividend. When it comes to distributing income through a trust as a strategy, Schofield shares with us what is needed. In that situation, I mean, there's nothing stopping anyone paying family members from a company um, but I mean, the principles in place that the people that are doing, that are being paid have to actually do work. You can't just pay people for the sake of it and say they did the work. There's got to be some demonstration that they're an employee, they've got a tax file number declaration, you know, they've got a job title, they've got a job description, they've got tasks, they've got to complete each week, each fortnight, each month, you know, they've got to be, it's it's got to look like a duck and quack like a duck to be a duck, otherwise it's, it's not a duck, <laughs> you know, and then it's not a tax deduction. So, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be hunky-dory, you've got to make sure that everything, you know, it's got to be what it says it is on the label, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Delving further into distributing income from a trust amongst family members, Schofield lets us know more about who you can divide the funds. He also informs us about the rules about distribution have changed over time. A really wide group of people, I mean, the way the trustees we use um, uh, are written, um, are written in such a way that they're, they're very, they're all encompassing from many different family members, you know, generally two, two generations up and two generations down. Um, I mean, you do. It is required that you need to have a family trust election on the tax return and a few other things. But I mean, in the main, generally speaking, there's a very wide group of people you can distribute to on a family trust, and that's where you get the benefit of a, a large group of people's marginal rates of tax, which is where you can add some some um, some real savings. For Schofield, there are quite a few reasons why he went into property rather than put his money into other investments such as shares. You should have some diversity. You shouldn't put everything in all your eggs in one basket. You know, you don't buy one $10 million building and cross fingers and toes that it's going to rent, you know. You're better off having five $2 million buildings or two $5 million buildings, you know, or dum da dum da da from there sort of thing. But I think, you know, I think you should also have some diversification and it's probably a good idea to hold other asset classes if that's what you're into. But why property? Um, I, look, I, still, I still think properties is still the greatest Australian dream, I think, in Australia. Well, probably in most Western countries where you know that have a freehold land system where the government doesn't own the money and you don't lease it from them, you physically own the dirt and you physically own the property. Um, I mean, there's something about property. You, you can hold it, you can touch it, you can see it, you can drive past it, you can tell your friends and your family to drive past it, you can build stuff on it, you can add things to it. I mean, being a builder's son, I mean, property is always going to be probably ingrained in me and an attraction to me as an asset class, I guess. Um, and then working with people that are property investors and developers, I mean, there's, they're good people. They're out just trying to get ahead like everybody else and they're taking risks. And sometimes they take the biggest risks and I've got a lot of time and a lot of respect for people that are going to take a risk, sensible risk, obviously, and calculated risk, planned risk, but a risk nonetheless. I've got a lot of time for people that are going to go out there and, and try and make something of nothing because I, I like to think I've done a little bit of that, not much. And I've had a crack and you become a bit of a kindred spirit with those sort of people.
Working with people on a regular basis in the property business is a privilege for Schofield and he delves a little into not only how much he enjoys it but how he interacts with his clients. And I don't just say that as a cliche throwaway, it really is a privilege to work with people, with business clients and property developer, property investor clients. I mean, I really enjoy it. It's really good fun. It's, it's great sitting down with a client and I hope, I, I, I don't think I'll ever lose the, the fire in the belly for it. You're sitting in with a client that's looking at buying their very first property to, you know, to do something with. You just think this is great and just taking them through the journey, um, sitting them in the room with my whiteboard, drawing stuff when they look back and go, I can, I can understand that perfectly, but if anyone else looked at it, it'd look like a three-year-old drew it, but <laughs> with lines and squares and triangles and dollar signs and things going everywhere, but just sitting down with people and getting them. The, the most important thing for me when anyone leaves my office, and I always say it to them, and even we have a meeting, I say, look, if there's anything you don't understand, call me, text me, email me. The most important thing is that you're comfortable with what you're doing you understand it as much as you're comfortable with. You've mitigated that risk in your own mind. And if you don't, let's go through the whole thing again until you are. Because if you're going to go and make a big decision and, you know, spend three, four, five hundred thousand plus, twenty million, you understand what you're getting yourself into. And you feel as though you've got the best person in your corner advising you at that particular time for what they're good at. He goes on to impart some important advice for those who are looking to invest in property themselves. It's easy to say because I'm a, you know, I'm an advisor and I do get paid to work with clients but I mean I can't stress enough, don't risk it for a biscuit, don't scrimp and save on a solicitor or an accountant. If you're working with an accountant, someone like myself and I say to do something, it's not because I'm trying to gouge you or make more money, it's because I think that's generally, the, that's what I would do. Here, this is what I would do and if I recommend you go and talk to somebody a solicitor or a town planner or somebody, it's because I genuinely think, well, that's who I would use as well. So, you know, I mean, people use the, the there's that principle, you know, would you would you introduce this person to your mum? And if the question's not, and if the question's no, then you don't do it. I guess I sort of take it one step further and say, well, would I talk to this person about this particular thing? And if the answer's no, then I wouldn't, rec- I wouldn't for one second recommend a client did. On his property journey, Schofield cites two people as his main mentors and believes books and various other people he has met have helped him as well. Definitely my dad. Uh, definitely my father-in-law, um, Mick. He, um, between my dad, Eddie, and Mick, I mean, you pick up a lot of stuff from them, particularly, I mean, he's Mick's in his 70s now. He's a real estate valuer and he has been, he started his career with the Valuer Generals and then started his own business and I mean, he's when it comes to real estate property value valuing, he's a bit of a doyen, and I think he's a bit of a myth. People still don't, people st- still can't believe he's still working. I think half the time when they see him, <laughs> but um, since he's in his seventies, he's always the oldest of the property things he goes to. Uh, but certainly, those two two men have been massive influences on anything I've ever done a property. And I still, even when we bought this, I still, you know, I still ask them the question: What do you think? What would you do? Here's the plans. Here's the location, and you know, if I had got a, if I hadn't got a green light from either of them, I probably wouldn't have gone ahead with it. Um, so them, and then mentors as well to keep going with that. Look, my clients are mentors. I pick up stuff off them. Um, um, I mean, I, I've, um, yeah, just um, yeah, I don't know. People in general, reading, reading stuff. Um, look, from a property point of view, whilst you mightn't like the guy. 
A lot of people don't. Um, you've got to admire someone like Donald Trump. You really do for what he's built and what he's done. Um, I think, you know, as a human being, maybe he's not the best guy in the world. I don't know. I've never met him, so I can't really make that judgment. But And and people might say, well, he's never really built anything. He's had other people do it for him. Well, that's pretty smart, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, you, I wouldn't say he's been a massive influence on my life, but reading his books and, I mean, just other people and people in general, yeah. Schofield shares with us one piece of advice that he believes is the best advice he's ever received and a book that has made a huge difference in his life. Bite off more than you can chew and chew like bleep. Um, it's always a good, it's always a good um, thing to do, provided you do it sensibly and carefully. You know, take a risk. Don't just, don't just do what you think you can do. Do a little bit more. Um, you know, stretch yourself. Um, yeah, and um, I know one of the other questions will be, um, well, I think probably what's, what's a book you might recommend I read? Well, I've taken some good advice from that. Um, the, and I know I'm jumping ahead slightly here, but um, you become what you think about, I think, Tyrone. I mean, if you really truly want to do something and you sort of obsess over it in a sensible way, you can get there. And there's a book that I, I really adore and it's an old book. Um, it's not you know, it's not one of the new, new age, I guess, sort of Gary Vaynerchuk type um, books, but I'm sure, or you know, or Tony Robbins, all that kind of stuff. But um, they, it all harks back to that. It's by a guy called um, Earl Nightingale, and it's called the Great, uh, the Strangest Secret. It's a, a really a good, short, sharp little book. That's um, really good, and I mean, and his his book can be pretty much boiled summed down to one line. That's what you become, what you think about. So. You know, I guess that's a good piece of advice that I've always followed as well. When asked about what he would say if he met himself 10 years ago, Schofield mentions quite a few things that could be relevant to many of us. If I met myself 10 years ago, I probably would have said buy more property because it will never be as cheap as it is today. Um, Do more things, work harder, focus on clients more, um, exercise more. That's one thing I should probably do. Um, take, I don't know, cherish. I mean, I don't want to get too, too woo-woo here, Tyrone, but, you know, you know, cherish your relationships you've got with people. In the next five years, Schofield is most excited about purchasing and renovating property with his wife. I'd like to buy a, a property that I could cosmetically renovate myself and sell it and make some money on and then go from there. That's probably what I'm most excited about. That's something I'm working towards doing in the next probably 12 months. And something I can do with my wife and my wife's got a really, really keen eye for um, finishes, colours, you know, interior design type um, stuff. She's very good at that. I'm not very good at that sort of thing and she is. So that'd be something nice that we could do together and, you know, make a little bit of money off and pile a bit away to pay for the oncoming onslaught of private school fees that we'll have. Schofield firmly believes hard work beats talent and luck any day of the week and cites some of his own experiences and the advice of others as proof. I'll say two things. Hard work beats talent every day of the week and um, and these are just quotes that you read on. You can read anywhere now. Once upon a time you had to read them in a book. Now you probably get it out of meme on social media but hard work beats talent every day of the week and Luck is just preparation 
preparation meeting opportunity. So um, I'd say a lot of the stuff I do is down to hard work, um, upbringing, having a good good influence in my home and the, the people I grew up with, my mum and dad and the people I surrounded myself with. Um, luck plays into it, but what's luck? What really is luck, Tyron? I don't know. I mean, are you lucky? You know, if you throw $20 on a – I mean, I, I don't – one of my hobbies is horse racing. I love horse racing and I've owned shares and horses and I do at the moment and sort of a little guilty pleasure that I've got. But, you know, is it lucky if you put money on a horse and it wins? Well, yeah, probably. Um, is it lucky that you start an accounting firm when you've got no income, no clients, your wife's not working at a six-week-old and it works out? I would say no. I'd say that's hard work. And that's just becoming what you think about every day and just keep telling yourself and maintaining, you know, not positive thoughts but positive actions. Um, that's an- another book I'm reading at the moment. It's by a, a guy called Phil Jauncey and he's worked with um, the, the straight cricket team and the Broncos and, um, you know, a lot of sporting teams and people like that. And he says he doesn't believe in positive thinking. He believes in positive doing. So you just do things that are positive and, you know, it's all, it's all that healthy habits, probably that – you know, seven habits of highly effective people. It's probably all those things that are wrapped up in it, I guess. But yeah, skill and intelligence certainly gets you so far, but hard work in channeled in the right direction in the right area for the right intentions, I think trumps everything, to be honest. If you'd like to contact Drew Schofield, you can do so through the following avenues. Jump on the website, uh, Forefront, and that's a number four, F-R-O-N-T dot net dot A-U. Um, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Drew, D-R-U-E, not D-R-E-W. Thanks, mum and dad. Spell my name for the rest of my life. D-R-U-E Schofield. Um, uh, and my best email address is D-R-U-E dot Schofield, S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D, at forefront.net.au. Thank you to Drew Schofield, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about his journey, then visit our website at propertyinvestory.com.au. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.